Thank you for downloading our podcast. We are tempted to pursue a more tangible religion. We can fall into a trap and think we need more than Christ. But Hebrews assures us that Christ is all we need. Join us as we study Hebrews to learn more about our great Melchizedekian priest who presides in heaven and calls us on this wonderful earthly pilgrimage. Well, the context of Hebrews 12 makes very explicit that the marathon of the Christian life is not always a, an easy race. Uh, there's turmoil, there's struggles, there's hardships, there's sin, there's distractions. There's a plethora of things we can go on to talk about from Hebrews 11 and what we've seen in the struggles of those saints and their persecution and how they persevered. And so when we, we hear this, we, we know that in Hebrews it, it seems, or I guess I shouldn't say we know, but it certainly seems in the letter to Hebrews that there's people on the verge of walking away from the Christian life. Now, there's very strong warnings. I understand the superiority of Christ, strong warnings about apostasy, strong lessons to be learned uh, from the wilderness community. And so the author of Hebrews very much, from what we've seen so far, goes between sort of this is a hardship of the Christian life, and here's the joy of the Christian life. Here's the struggle of the Christian life. Here's the joy of the Christian life. And Hebrews 12 really is, is no exception to that. Uh, because the temptation is to think that as we walk by faith, uh, as, as we have our eyes focus on Christ, that the Christian life is easy, with no setbacks, no struggles. Um, it's easy to keep a, a clear picture and perspective, but that's just not true. And the reality is then, when we look at this, why is the author of Hebrews calling us to strive? What, what's the substance of that striving? And how do we know that in the context of this striving, that Christ is sufficient? How do we know that? And so as we look at this, we'll see first, what is the striving? And secondly, what is our confidence? And so let's begin with what is this striving? Well, as I call your attention to Hebrews 12, verse 14, it says, strive for peace with everyone. And then he goes on to say, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So what does this mean? Well, the striving is not just making up one's mind or one's consciousness. Uh, Peter gives sort of an exhortation along those lines where he says, set your, your mind on this hope. So whatever's going on with the audience that Peter is addressing in 1 Peter 1, 13 through 14, they're, they're, they're not understanding just the mental fortitude of being locked into the gospel. That's really what, what Peter's getting at, having that, that mental clarity of life. But this striving is something that's more holistic. Uh, Christ in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, uh, it's the same word for persecute. So one certainly has a consciousness that uh, what these people believe and what they're holding to is wrong, at least in my view. Therefore, I need to go and put this down by any means possible. So striving persecution as a consciousness to pursue that goal uh, to destroy something. 
And, and so that's sort of the negative connotation of this word that we see used a lot in the New Testament. It's used throughout the book of Acts. It's the same sort of force, that consciousness of I need to put this down. So it's something deliberate. So when Hebrews is using this, we may say, well, is, is Hebrews telling us that, that there's something uh, wrong, that, that we need to like put down other people? But this is where the word and its usage becomes sort of ironic. Because when you think of this striving in the sense of persecution, it's the opposite of persecution, isn't it? It's striving for peace and holiness. It's a call for us to, to have a consciousness in the Christian life. But not only a, a consciousness that everything about our being has a purpose to please God. That, that's how we have to see this. That's his intention here. And when we put this in the context, as I mentioned, Hebrews 12, difficult to, to break up. But you put this in the context of these immediate verses. What have we been told to do? Drooping hands, weak knees, right? So our, our call is to have these things be stronger. So it's the picture of, of the Christian life where this church wants to give up, it seems. In Hebrews, the author is saying, don't give up. As you're on the marathon, uh, you're wondering if you're going to make it to the goal. You don't know if you want to make it to the goal. It's not clear. The author of Hebrews is saying, keep fighting. So that's what this is saying. Have that orientation, that fight to the goal. The striving for peace with everyone is also along the lines of uh, where Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 3.17, where he says it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And that seems to be the, the intention here. That as much as it's up to us, don't make it a point that, you know, you've provoked something or you've made it so your life is tough um, and you actually deserve what you're going through. Hebrews is saying it's better to actually go uh, do what's right and seek to honor the Lord and, and have the assurance that, that there's a bigger picture, a bigger goal that's awaiting us. Now, when he tells us not only to strive uh, for this peace with an orientation, basically having everything in our being, everything about us tuned in, sensitive to the purpose of God, that, that there's a consciousness, a, a, a deliberateness about how we live our lives before the Lord with everything, our whole hearts tuned into him. But he goes on to say also about this holiness. Now, when we hear this, we, we might think, well, this means that, that we really need to work hard. We need to make sure that, that we please God. And as, as we please God, uh, we're, we're going to have a, a great reward. And so we basically just start here right at chapter 12. Well, the problem is there's something more going on. Because His holiness, he, he does warn us, and He says, without it, no one will see God. So this means... Without holiness, one's not going to come into the presence of God. But if we just read this and rip it out of the context, we can make this mean something it doesn't necessarily mean. And so what's going on? Well, the holiness that's spoken of here is recalling the Old Testament case law. So basically, you look through Leviticus, and if someone has a blemish, that person's put out of the assembly. Uh, there's an imperfection. And so this, this holiness is understanding that 
Uh, we need to be part of God's assembly. Uh, we, we don't want to be put out. And so this call for us to pursue holiness, we say, okay, so if we're not holy enough, and what's the standard of being holy enough? Because this becomes a, a little bit of a, uh, a difficult standard because we can always be holier. We can always be more sanctified. We can always sin less. We can always bring forth more fruits of the faith, right? And so when, when you hear this, again, you, you hear sort of the rabbi inviting you to think deeper, to sort of lay this out and say, let's think deeper. What, what does this mean? Well, in terms of this holiness and this consciousness of how we are to live, how do we pursue God? Well, Hebrews, prior to all these arguments that he's given right here, prior to all this exhortation and encouragement that he gives us, what has he told us about Christ? He is a great Melchizedekian priest. What's the assurance in Hebrews 4? We draw near to that throne of grace in our time of need. We have a sympathetic priest. And so, understanding who we are in terms of this Christian life and this pursuit of holiness, what does that mean? It means we're pursuing God. We're desiring to bring more and more glory to His name as the people have been redeemed. So now when we hear about the Lord disciplining us in the context of chapter 12, we said it's not just that the Lord is doing this because we've done something wrong, therefore He's going to smack us and beat us in the line. And when we do something right, all of a sudden He, he gives us this great uh, reward. You know, we, we see from the book of Job, a relationship with God is far more complicated than that. You know, Job himself didn't do anything necessarily wrong, deserving of what he endured, but yet the disciplinary action of God is still upon him. And what does Job need to learn? He needs to learn that God is far more complex. We are far more sinful. We are very unworthy of God's blessing. And yet by the grace of God, but what does Job realize? God is the ultimate deliverer. God is the one who continues to care for us. So Hebrews 12, in this exhortation for us to strive in this race, what, what are we oriented to? It's always coming back to, I want to see my Lord. I understand Christ is redeemed. I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. My Lord has conquered. I need to continue to push forward in the confidence that He is at work within me. But going on, He tells us that we need to be careful in, in terms of how we live. We don't want to fail to obtain the grace of God. Uh, he warns us about the root of bitterness. Now this term of, of bitterness comes to us from Deuteronomy 29.18. So again, the author of Hebrews is drawing a lot on the theology of the Old Testament and giving exhortations in terms of, of the application to, to the church and how we live in a post-Christ era, meaning that Christ has entered history. We're looking back to the Messiah instead of looking forward to the Messiah. And so in terms of this, this warning, Deuteronomy 29 gives us warning uh, that, that's severe for the people of God that we're going to be tempted to trust in other gods, other things. And not only just in, in the sense that we chuck 
uh, you know, the true God of Scripture, and then embrace this God. The warning is you start saying, well, this God of Scripture is not really doing it for me, and I need to supplement him with some other gods, right? This is a deception of idolatry. It's not really idolatry because I still worship the true God. I'm just sort of trusting in some other things along the way to assist me in trusting in the true God. And so Moses already gives a warning to the people, listen, you start turning bitter against your God and start allowing this root to take, to take root within you, within your heart, you can tell yourself whatever you want. I'm going to worship the true God and then uh, maybe have some other supplemental things. Well, I think any of us know, and even you don't even have to necessarily be a farmer. You try and keep a nice lawn. You have one weed sprout up and allow that thing to take root. Guess what? It's a lot easier to grow a yard of weeds than it is to grow a yard of grass. And that's the point that Hebrews is driving home. We say, oh, it's only one weed. It's only one thing taking root. And Hebrews is saying, and what happens? That one weed ends up impacting the whole field, the whole yard. It ends up impacting the whole person. And so Hebrews is giving a, a severe warning, saying, don't think that you can just dabble around with the true God and act as if there's no consequences to this. He's saying you might be handing yourself over to that one weed to the bitterness that can take root and basically tear up the whole person. And he goes and he gives this strange recollection of Esau. Because he, he warns us, you know, don't let this bitterness take in. Understand what can happen. Uh, you can be handed over to this sin. He goes, don't be like Esau, right? So you have uh, Jacob and Esau, the two twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. And, and you have this story with you know, the older will serve the younger. Jacob's the line of the woman. And he identifies Esau as being sexually immoral and unholy. You sort of hear this say, wait a minute. Esau didn't really seem like he was necessarily an, an adulterer in terms of the story that he's recalling. Uh, you know, it, I don't know if that's necessarily the case. But this is where you're understanding the deeper implications of the law of God. Because this, this metaphor, you can think of Hosea, Gomer, taking the unfaithful wife to himself, then it's playing out the picture of Israel, pursuing other wives, pursuing other gods, seeing something else as better than their true God. That's what this is calling to our attention. And what's Esau's fundamental problem? Well, if we think back to the story that's called to our attention here in Hebrews, we have Esau who's out in the field, most likely hunting. And it seems that as he's coming back and he's starving, he probably uh, had a rather or it's potential that it's an unsuccessful hunt. Well, Jacob, the mama's boy, which is basically how he's presented in the text, who's in the kitchen cooking with mom, making the lentil stew. So the play here is Esau, red, hairy, Edom, red, the stew, if you look at it in the Hebrew, is red, at least in, in the implication of it. And we say, well, lentil stew is brown. It depends how it's made. But the reality is there, there's a pun. The red sells himself to the red. In other words, uh, the very food that is before him ident is identified with Esau. And so his identity is not with the people of God consciously. His identity is with the food. 
And so the, the problem here is along the lines of where the Apostle Paul gives a warning about paganism, that, that their God is their belly in Philippians 3. And people say, oh, so they're just gluttons. That, that's not the point. The point is they live for this age, for the here and now, for this life. And that's what Esau was about. And so when he turns to his dad and he begs for a blessing, what does he want? He wants the inheritance. But he doesn't want the true inheritance. He wants the inheritance, the riches of what Abraham and Isaac have acquired. He can't look beyond this world. He can't look to his God. And so the author of Hebrews is basically saying, take note of our genealogy. You're going to trust in a Jewish genealogy. What do we have in our roots? We have Esau, who who thought that, you know, maybe he would want the promise, but he doesn't want the promise. He wants this life. He, He wants the blessings of this age. He wants an easy life. He wants heaven now. He doesn't want to wait for his God. So he chucks everything. And then when he repents, what does he receive? Well, he doesn't receive any hope of having a heavenly inheritance it's only an earthly identity he sought it with tears but not the true heavenly reality that's what the author of hebrews is calling to the church's attention so when you hear this it's that reminder listen walk away from christ say christ is not sufficient the great melchizedekian priest is not enough hebrews is saying have you thought about what you're losing think about the reality of And this is where it's important that now we notice how he sort of slaps us on the wrist, slaps us on the hand, gives us a very firm warning. But now he goes on and he says, but look at what you have. Because our temptation is like, but Israel came out of Egypt, walked through the Red Sea, came to this tumultuous mountain, Sinai, and then they had to wander the wilderness. But but they saw that wonderful mountain. What do we have? And the author of Hebrews addresses that now. And as the author of Hebrews addresses this, he tells us the fundamental precedent. The reality is, when you look at Hebrews 11, there's a whole slew of people who have gone before us from a variety, as we've called to our attention. Abraham, uh, one who lived a a, a life of, uh, we could say, under the sun, a pretty good life in the sense that he's so wealthy uh, that even King Abimelech has to make a treaty with him because he doesn't want Abraham to take over uh, his city, the place of his rule. All the way down to those who have a life of just suffering and hardship. But the point is that in Hebrews 11, it ends at Hebrews 12, of that great cloud of witnesses. In other words, there are those from heaven looking back telling us that this life under the sun, which sometimes can be rather difficult, can be trying, it's not always easy to wait upon the Lord, but those witnesses are saying, but it's worth it. The God of heaven fulfills his promises. These are not empty promises. They are real. And so as the author of Hebrews is exhorting us, he's saying, listen, don't be an Esau like a Hebrews 6 situation of not being renewed to repentance, not having life. Don't think, well, back in those days, they really had it good. Because it was far more wonderful, far more incredible and visible. 
So the author of Hebrews now is taking up that objection that people can say. It's far more visible, far more tangible. It's superior in every way. Hebrews is saying, oh, is it now? Let's think about this scenario. So when he goes on and he starts talking about the reality of this life in verses 18 uh, through uh, 21, and he talks about the reality of what Israel had. He, he recalls for us Exodus 19 and Deuteronomy 4. And he never says the mountain. Do, do you notice that? He never says Mount Sinai. But he tells us about a mountain that they approach. Blazing fire, the trumpet, the voice of God being so intense that Israel couldn't handle it. They are those that as they come before this place, they are terrified. Israel, as they stand before this mountain, have a place of terror. Israel is going to start at a place of terror and sojourn to a place of rest, Mount Zion. But as we've already heard in Hebrews 11, and we've recalled the issue with the judges and what's going on there, they didn't arrive at the fullness, did they? We find that Samson ultimately in Judges 13 verse 1 no longer is Israel seeking the face of God. We have not only Israel doing what's right in her own eyes by implication, but the pattern was they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Israel cried out and God delivers them. But by Judges 13, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. They never cry out to God, but God still delivers them. Which tells us that Israel going into the land does not secure the ultimate promise and rest. And so what is the ultimate hope? Well, this other place that was terrifying to them, where they begged for God no longer to speak to them because they couldn't handle His voice. They could not endure the holiness of what they saw, that even if an animal touched this mountain, it was to be executed, that truly this is not a place of rest. It's a place of terror. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, let's just think about the reality of this in verses 18 through 21. Moses himself, the prophet, who spoke to God face to face, was commissioned by the angel of the Lord before the burning bush, also says, I tremble with fear. So we understand that God is a holy God. This mountain communicates that, but it does not invite people to draw to this Lord because it's terrifying, it's scary. One understands how unapproachable it is to come into the presence of a holy God as an unholy people. But notice the author of Hebrews. He changes this. But you have come to Mount Zion. This is a reminder for us to understand who our God is. That it's no longer a picture of a sojourn from Sinai to Zion. That's what Israel underwent, and they never enjoyed the rest of God. But the author of Hebrews is saying, now that the Melchizedekian priest has entered history, this is where I bring you. You are a people who enter into the presence of God and Mount Zion, where the Lord dwells in His holiness, the heavenly Jerusalem. So it's no longer a picture here of what you could have like with Jacob uh, and uh, Genesis 28, with the Lord coming down to him, building the tower, and the angels ascending and descending. 
The call is for us to understand we are called into the presence of God, where you have innumerable angels, and there's a celebration, a praising. You think of John in the book of Revelation hearing the praises and the calling out to God, this praising the Lord for what he has done. And we understand then that this heavenly city with the angels inhabiting here, we have the assembly of the firstborn. That's a profound statement. But unfortunately, in our contemporary uh, context, we, we, we miss the, the profoundness of this. The firstborn refers back to what Esau did. The firstborn received the greater inheritance. So with Esau chucking the, the inheritance and the birthright, saying, oh, what is that to me? I'm about to die. Life and death for Esau was only this world. But here, the author of Hebrews is exhorting us to understand that in Christ Jesus, the only true firstborn son of God, right? From eternity. Hebrews 1, where this letter begins, invites us and secures us to be the firstborn children of this inheritance. There's no longer, in terms of inheritance rights, a distinction between the firstborn and the secondborn. This is a profound thing. What Christ has attained is ours. And the author of Hebrews is saying, we are enrolled in heaven. This is our identity. And he's saying, and listen to the spirits, Hebrews 11, the great cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. They're waiting there for the fullness. They're waiting for the completion. What are they waiting for? For us to arrive. So the author of Hebrews as he gives these, these stern warnings, pursue holiness, pursue the Lord, desire to live for the Lord, we say, well, why? The author of Hebrews is saying, don't be like Esau, the one who chocks his birthright, the one who says that, that the suffering through a few trials and tribulations isn't worth it. The author of Hebrews is saying, listen to those who have gone before you. Some have had a pretty easy life. Some have had a life filled with turmoil. But whatever the case, all of them arrived at the inherited promise because God is faithful. And now he tells us why. Because we, we've kind of been in, in limbo. He tells us to strive for holiness. We built it on the implication of pursuing God, having the uh, eternal priesthood of Christ, thinking back to Hebrews 4, the priest that can sympathize in light of Israel falling away and not attaining their rest. But the assurance here is that there's this better word that's spoken. And we wonder, like, well, what does he mean by that? This is bloodshed. This isn't a word. But he says he's a meteor of the new covenant that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How can he speak a better word if it's blood that is shed. And so let's think about this. Abel is the first one who's mentioned in Hebrews 11, verse 4. He's the first uh, witness called to our attention as a testimony of the saints or the roster in heaven. First one. And as he's the one who's the first one, he's also the first martyr. So we think about when the Lord confronts uh, Cain after the murder. Cain tries to deny him. Why my brother's keeper? I don't know where he is. I don't know anything about this. And the Lord says, but your brother's blood 
bears testimony. In other words, the, the life of the saints speaks to the Lord. It's a rather profound thing of how our life means something to God, where, where you think about who we are as mere ants, mere, mere dots in history and in, in the grand scheme of things. But yet we matter to the Lord. Even the blood of Abel, this insignificant individual that Cain one day could just take his life and snuff him out and thought that in snuffing him out, he was silent. But his blood spoke. The Lord called uh, Abel's blood as a character witness, if you will, to Cain's trial. That his blood means something, spoke to the Lord. His life meant something. And when we think about that, we say, wow, that's amazing. First martyr, recalled for us, Hebrews 11:4. God never forgot him, upheld him. His life really had meaning in Christ. But now we have a better one who speaks a better word. The incarnation. The incarnate word who has come. Why is his blood so much better? Because the blood of Abel only has meaning because the blood of Christ has been shed. Think about how profound that is. Going from the first martyr to the one who confirms the promises of God as the incarnate word of God. As he enters history and sheds his blood, what does that blood do? Well, we've heard from Hebrews uh, 2, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 7, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9, and we can go through how the author has developed this theme. The point of that blood is it cleanses the heavenly tabernacle. It confirms the word of God. It's the priest king who goes before us, accomplishing the Lord's redemption. And so the author of Hebrews is saying the very mountain that was tangible and put Israel in a panic is the one who has been sanctified and has been glorified as we arrive at Mount Zion. The ultimate outcome of our sojourn, that we know we will arrive because a great Melchizedekian priest king, king of righteousness, has secured it, dwelling in the heavenly tabernacle, securing the promises of old. God's word has been confirmed and validated in him. So when we ask these questions then, why do we strive? How do we know Christ's sufficiency? Well, we strive because of what we've heard from Hebrews 11. And this is where I go again, verses 1 through 3, so important. It's the power of the Spirit that recreates. And we see the manifestation of that recreative power in those saints. And those saints bear witness and testimony from the first martyr to the last, uh, called to our attention in Hebrews 11. They all are the cloud of witnesses who have gone before us, arriving at Mount Zion. The author of Hebrews then gives us the assurance, how does this happen? Because the blood of Christ speaks that better confirming word. The promises of God are confirmed because Christ is raised from the dead, seated in the heavenly temple. When we feel the hand of the Lord's discipline upon us, however that may look, Hebrews is reminding us it's not because God has turned away from us. It's not because God is angry with us. 
is because God is shepherding us, leading us through another place in our Christian walk. And the place where we need to be confident is our Lord prevails. And as our Lord prevails and has prevailed, we will prevail in Him. So we continue to strive, not as a people without hope, not as a people in despair, but as a people who know that our great heavenly priest has overcome and applied his redemption and secured for us the perfect, glorious Mount Zion, where we will dwell and we will sing praises with the angels of heaven. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, see this as your identity today. Continue to sojourn in light of this promise as the Lord's redeemed. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.